Welcome to the Life Chapters podcast, real women, real stories. Hi, I'm Stacey, and I am super passionate about showing everyday women like you that they really do have a story to share. In my opinion, everyone deserves to be heard. And on this podcast, you will get to meet some pretty fabulous women who have amazing stories to tell. Some of the stories you hear might trigger you, but they're all spoken by the women who lived them. Some of them will make you smile. Some of them might make you cry. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life Chapters podcast. Today I have got Andrea with me. Andrea is a counsellor and she specialises in helping mums. And I know I've got lots of mums that listen to this podcast. So, Andrea, tell us whereabouts you are in the country and what story do you want to share with my audience today? I am in Surrey and I'm going to share the story of my mental health journey and why it led me to do the job I do, I guess. So mental health, huge, big area, huge, big topic. Tell us tell us what happened and, and how you came to be where you are today. OK, I think looking back, I had always from my teens struggled with anxiety and particularly around my health I can remember very very vividly having stuff sort of around when I was sort of eight, seventeen, eighteen, 18 and then it sort of disappeared for a bit and then it would never be never be unmanageable but I was always aware of it and then in my 20s um I actually got ill in my 20s um mm-hmm. and then I got better moved to London and and it never sort of reared its head. Um, what I now know is that, you know, um, a lot of anxiety is stress triggered. And I think when I was living in my 20s, I was living, in my, living my best life. So I probably wasn't particularly stressed. And then when I was 39, I got pregnant. And it had taken a while. Um, and I was over the moon because I wasn't sure whether we were going to be able to have a baby. And I was a bit worried when we decided to get pregnant, how I would be because of this health anxiety that had always been there and I'd had times it had been worse and times it wasn't so bad because I knew it was obviously going to mean a lot of hospital and doctor's appointments. And then when it happened, I was like, okay. And actually I was fine with it. I think because I knew I wasn't unwell, I knew there was a reason why I was going to doctors. Um, Seeing the midwife didn't feel as scary as going in and having a doctor's appointment. And I loved being pregnant. I I really did. Well, I didn't. I was sick for the first four months. I didn't like that bit so much. But the rest of it, I loved. And then, um, and then I gave birth. And the birth was not uneventful, as birth is often not. Um, but you know, see, but but we all came out of it relatively unscathed, shall we say? And then, about six weeks after Bella, my daughter was born, I. I can. I had. I just had a thought one day of, what if I get ill and die, and I, I couldn't. After once the once that one thought came, it never went away, and it was quickly followed by a whole load of more of those types of thoughts. And I used to, I would be in the park, and I would look at other children, other parents in the park with like old like toddlers on swings, and I would look at them and be. I would look at her and obviously she was still a baby and I would be, what if I never get to push her on a swing? What if I never hear her speak? What if I 
never get to teach her to ride a bike? What if I'm not there on her first day of school? And it just snowballed and I couldn't stop it. And um, and the weird thing was I was, well, so I know now because of what I do now, that when I was with other people, like when my, my partner was home and I was distracted, I was fine. And I was what I would call now high functioning, if you like. Like when I was with friends or other people and distracted, I could the thoughts would recede and it wouldn't be so bad. But I think the loneliness of being at home for eight hours a day with a baby that also never slept. So my sleep deprivation was terrible, which is so bad for all things mental health. Um, so nobody knew and I didn't tell anybody. And at my worst, I became, so we lived in a house then. We didn't live in the house we're in now. We lived in a house that was like, um, you know, like a two up, two down terraced house where your living room window is kind of like right on your front sort of, whatever you'd call it um and I used we used to live near a park and there would be a lot of magpies and I became obsessed with magpies and that if I saw um and I so I started so I, I started reading up about them and reading that if a magpie lands outside your house or on your window that it's a really bad omen and I became obsessed with them and I remember one morning opening the curtains and there was one outside and so after that I started keeping the curtains shut and I would just spend days, like all day at home, but with the curtains shut because I was too frightened. If I looked outside and I would see one, that it meant that, you know, that was convinced me then that bad things, you know, that bad things were going to happen to me. Um, and the other things, the other types of thoughts that I used to have, obviously my whole thing was based around me not dying. So just to caveat what I'm about to say, I wasn't suicidal because it was all about me staying alive and being here to see her grow up. But I started thinking about, um, I remember having thoughts about, well, if I die now, then she won't miss me because she'll never have known me. And also if I die now, she, I will not know her. But I didn't want to die. It was just that the pain, the, the thought of it, it was just that that's how it felt in that moment and I also I also had thoughts about you know if I had known how all-encompassing the love that I felt for her and how strong those feelings were that I wouldn't have done it I wouldn't have got pregnant in the first place but that was caveated by or, or balanced by she was the best thing that had ever happened to me in my life and I know that sounds like a massive contradiction but that's where your brain goes when you're in that state within your mental health and but what but the weirdest part of it was so this went on for about um probably about five or six months I remember sitting on the kitchen floor one morning at 10 o'clock in the morning holding her and just sobbing and looking at her face and thinking like I'm not you know all these thoughts that I've just said and thinking like oh this can't you know this can't continue like this but I but like I, said, I hadn't said anything to anybody because that was all that thing of me you know going it's what if people think I can't cope all the things that my clients now say you know what if if I go to the doctor what if they think I'm not coping and they take her away and mixed in with all of this as well was that I couldn't breastfeed I really struggled to breastfeed and I remember taking her to be weighed um so she was so 
again, with what I do now, I know now that the risk factors for postnatal depression and postnatal anxiety, one of them is a difficult birth. She was quite a difficult birth. And two is um, any previous mental health history, which it was never diagnosed, but I know I experienced it. And, um, and another one is difficulty breastfeeding. And I, I just, I couldn't, it wasn't happening for me. Um, I just wasn't producing milk. It wasn't that I couldn't, which made it worse in a way for me at the time because it felt like it's not that I can't, that she's not getting the latch right or tongue tie or anything like that. It was me physically not producing anything. She was losing a lot of weight and you'll know when, when babies are born, they they weigh them, they lose 10% of their birth weight when they're born and then they're supposed to gain weight and there's this whole chart thing that everyone becomes obsessed with. And, um, and then they use these awful, awful phrases like, Failure to thrive if they're losing too much weight. Basically, that's what they were saying, that she was losing too much weight and that I had to stop even trying because it wasn't happening. And I remember taking her to a health visitor to be weighed and sitting in the waiting room and all these women, literally everyone in the room was breastfeeding apart from me and me trying to get these like formula bottles out. And there was a poster on the wall that this makes me really, really angry. I'm going to try not to swear. But there was posters on the wall that said, uh, my mummy's a star because she's breastfeeding me. Because obviously everything's trying to promote breastfeeding, which I get, but they forget that there's a huge amount of women that don't want to do it or can't do it for whatever reason. I remember sitting there fighting back tears because I just thought, I'm just failing at all counts here. Like, I can't do this and it's my body that can't do it. But all this stuff happening in my head now at this point, and it just, and all of those things together just snowballed. I was born in November. I used to walk around this park in the freezing cold weather just pushing the pram round and round and round the park to get out of the house and then eventually I did go to the GP and I said look I, I, I don't think I'm depressed because I wasn't I had none of those feelings that I thought women had when they were depressed like I didn't want my baby or I couldn't didn't want to look after the baby or that I didn't want to go out and do things it was the opposite if I could see a friend every single day I was that was great I just that wasn't possible Maternity leave is lonely, really lonely for a lot of people. So I just thought, well, I'm not depressed, but I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm having these weird, all these awful thoughts. And the GP was great. And they said, oh, we think we'll refer, refer you for therapy. So they referred me for therapy. And this is going to sound strange, bearing in mind that I'm now a therapist and what I'm about to say. But it was shit. And no disrespect, it was because it was kind of, you know, you get six sessions the NHS do a brilliant job, they really do, but the mental health provision is stretched at best. And this is seven years ago now, it's worse now. You get six sessions and you don't get to choose who you go and see. Fair enough, they allocate you. So it's very difficult to create that rapport, which is really important. And I went in and the guy just kind of was very well-meaning, but he was like, he probably just put one look at me, this 40-year-old sleep-deprived woman and just sort of went oh yeah you've got you've got health anxiety and it was a bit formulaic and I didn't and I probably in fairness to him I probably didn't engage with it I don't think I was in the right place to engage with it the, the thing that strikes me is what you're saying is the fact that you didn't tell anybody oh. you kept this inside your own head for such a long time and and I wonder I wonder how now that you're through it, now that you've moved on, I wonder what, what your partner, has. have you spoken about what he saw and what he thought was going on? It, it just strikes me that you were in this relationship and this baby, this, this, this beautiful daughter was loved and wanted and 
And yet here was you with these crazy thoughts in your head. I think, I mean, I did tell him, I told him, I told him at the point of when I went to go and get therapy, I said, you know, I, I don't think that, but this is the weird thing. And, it, and this is the thing, it manifests differently for different for everybody. And for me, if I was with other people, you know, I was great. It wasn't sometimes, sometimes when I was with other people, I would see, because weirdly, they, when I got pregnant of my group of close girlfriends, we all got pregnant in the same year, all six of us. It was the weirdest thing. So when we were all together at any kind of group thing, everyone was with, ba- we all had babies. And sometimes the thoughts would come then. This is the thing, you see, you can, when you're anxious, you can then become depressed about the fact that you're anxious. In the same way that if you're depressed, you can become anxious about the fact that you're depressed. So I, I then did probably start to become a bit depressed because I just thought everyone else is really happy. And I'm having all these thoughts. Um, and I did tell him, but I think, you know, he was out at, work, out at work for, he'd leave at seven in the morning and he'd come back at six in the evening. And then with a baby, you've got the whole bath time and the bedtime shenanigans that take hours on end. And then we would fall into bed because we were tired. So I don't know whether you, it wasn't like I was sort of crying in front of him. When he was home, I was able to kind of go, oh, I've got company now and everything felt better. So I, I don't think he would have, I don't think he would have known. And also he's quite a, you know, he's one of the sort of people, he's quite laid back and nothing really ever bothers him. And I, I think he'd about to come home and find me sitting on the floor crying to be able to go, mm, is something wrong? And that never happened. So, but when I come on to the second part of this, it sort of becomes even more weird when I talk about work. So at this point, I wasn't a therapist. I'd worked for the same company for 13 years and I was working for a, an event, technical event production company in London. And, I, and I'd been there, yeah, well, at this point, I would have been there 12, 11 years. And I loved it. I did love the job. But I sort of knew when I got pregnant that I thought, yeah, maybe maybe now it's time to have a rethink because I, I don't know if I want to be commuting and working long hours with a small baby. So I had this therapy. I went with this therapy. And interestingly, though, I lied to my mother-in-law. So when I had to go for the therapy, you you didn't really get a say when it was. They just sort of said, this is your appointment you've been given, a bit like a hospital appointment. Whereas when you go therapy privately, you get to choose when you have your sessions. So I didn't get to choose. So I needed I needed someone to look after Bella when I went. And I didn't even, my mother-in-law is amazing. I love her. She never would have judged me. She's had therapy herself. So, but I still felt I couldn't say. And so I told her I was going for physio on my wrist. Um, so that she would come and babysit while I went. So that was weird. And I, I think it was that was to do with just judgment of me thinking that I don't, I'd always been a really capable person. You know, I had this job that I'd done a long time that I was good at. And I just felt like, well, why, why can't I get a grip of this situation? I don't know why this is happening. So I had the therapy and it didn't really work. But then, but then I went back to work. I got, I think, Bella passed the six-month stage. Obviously, it gets a little bit easier. You're not so beholden to napping and all of that. That got a bit easier, which helped, I think. I was probably getting a bit more sleep, so that was helping. But then, it, And then I, I actually went back to work at 11 months rather than the full 12. I thought, I'm going to go back a month earlier. But while I was on maternity leave, I had clients that I'd worked with for a long time, and one of which my boss asked me if I would help deliver their event. It was in Birmingham. And I went when Bella was three months old to Birmingham. And I can remember crying on the train and then getting there and delivering this huge awards show. And the client saying, saying to me, you know, 
oh my god like you look amazing and you're and all that thing of like from outward I looked like oh she only gave birth three months ago and look at her she's like all of a sudden and it couldn't have been further from the truth it's amazing what you know lipstick and a pair of heels can hide like nobody knew that that's what was happening in my head I went back to work and things I think getting to a routine she went to nursery but then I still wasn't great and I was crying on the train on the way to work and then running into work and it wasn't about leave it wasn't I don't know I think I was just I'd negotiated with my boss that I would start work at 10 because I couldn't get leave her in nursery and get to where the office was by 9 a.m but then sometimes the trains would be late like trains are and I would be hyperventilating on the train going I'm going to be late everyone's going to look at me and I'm going to be late in and everyone's going to think that I'm not pulling my weight and it became like this big thing. And I would I would walk around the corner of the building and like really hope that certain cars weren't there so that certain people wouldn't see that I'd come in late. And I'd also agreed while I was on maternity leave to kind of take a bit of a promotion and become part of the board. It's quite a male dominated industry. I was only there was there was probably a hundred staff and about six women then. And I was only the second person in the eleven years I'd been there that I'd known have a baby. And my boss was love, a lovely guy, and he is a lovely guy, but I, but not very not very forward thinking. Certainly not about working from home. So this was this was continuing where I would be, and then I would be leaving work and running, like getting getting to Waterloo Station, and then ho- running and hoping I would make a train to get home in time so that she would still be awake and I could do bath time and bedtime and see her because I hadn't seen her all day, and still having a bit of this. A little bit of this thought stuff of like, well, now I'm worried that I'm not going to be here and see her grow up, but also I'm not even here now. Like I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm all this stuff. So then I asked if I could work from home maybe one day a week and I got told no. And then the pressure of this sort of role I'd taken and everything that was going on and the state of my mental health, I, I just went and said to him, I need to take a step back. Can I go back to my old role? And actually... I asked somebody that I'd worked that was under me. I said to him to put him forward to promote him and he got promoted ahead of me and he was someone I'd known for all the 11 years I'd worked there. And he took the role on, but then they started to make life really difficult for me in a way of saying, we don't think, you know, that you can start at 10 anymore, even though that's what I've been agreed. And long story short, I think they wanted to manage me out. I just, I think they knew that I wasn't really giving maybe as much as I did but it was handled really really badly and I had this awful it was the Christmas well it would have been two and at the Christmas time um I got called into a meeting in the boardroom with my boss and this guy who had been promoted from like junior to me above me and they just sort of sat there and were sort of like well we're not gonna let you work from home so kind of like this like what are you going to do about it? And I burst into tears. And I can remember sitting in this meeting like this and my head in my hands, just crying to them with these two guys just going, oh God, oh God, she's crying. We don't know what to do about it. This is really awkward. And I was sort of saying, I don't know. I, I, I'm not giving my best here. I'm not giving my best at home. Aside from all of this, I had already decided that I knew I wanted to leave. I knew it wasn't working for me and I needed to leave and retrain. And I'd always done volunteer work. I'd worked with the Terrence Higgins Trust, working with like, newly diagnosed HIV patients I sort of always had this thing where I'd done volunteering work in a kind of non-professional but counselling type way and I knew that the therapy that I'd had six months previous 
wasn't great. And I just thought there's got to be something better for women like me who were in the position that I, that I was in and kind of still was in really at that point. So I started retraining. But my plan, my, the degree course I was doing was, a, was like a four-year course. So I wasn't planning on leaving my job. And I still liked the job, really. They just weren't flexible with me. And my mental health just wasn't improving because of it. Anyway, in the end, they let me sort of stew over the Christmas. They said, oh, well, you go away and see if you can come up with a solution that we might accept. So I was left over the whole of Christmas just going, I don't know what to say. And I went back and I put something to them. And basically, they were sort of thinking they were going to accept it. Then they offered me a payout to leave and they paid they basically paid me off because I think that they knew that if I took it to a tribunal they paid me to go see a, a solicitor and I did and they um and they, yeah and they paid me off and I and I left and I was bitter about it for quite a long time because I felt that they didn't they 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 could see that day in the boardroom when I when I broke down that I was in a really bad place mentally but you know it didn't really make any difference they didn't really do anything about it and I, and I left and I, I was really lucky. I took a part-time job in the town I live in three days a week. And I, by that point, I was far enough into my course that I, I had to start seeing clients anyway for my course. And so I took two days a week starting to see clients. And then I went fully into my private practice two, two and a half years ago now. And then that's what I do now. And I predominantly work with women who have got postnatal depression and postnatal anxiety because of, and it was only when I started learning that I really understood where, why I'd got to where I'd got to, why I was ma- what, what I was doing behaviour-wise that was keeping it going and maintaining it instead of helping it, that I got better, you know. And I, and I still, I maintain now that, you know, I'm always someone who will be prone to anxiety. I know the things that trigger it. It's a bit like being an alcoholic. I think it'll be something I'll always have. I don't think you ever get rid of it. But I know I can see when it when I'm triggered, I can see what things help it and what things hinder it, and I can manage it. And when it does happen, I've got the tools to to quieten it down a lot quicker than I used than I, well, I didn't have any tools before when it was happening to me. But it strikes me that what you are describing is not unusual for mums. One in like one in three. Wow, that is a huge statistic. That that's one in three women who have a child are going to have some form of anxiety mm-hmm. around the baby that they they love and they are. Oh, wow, that, that that just takes my breath away. And in terms of those sort of tools, the toolbox that you've now got and things like that, are they are they things that every woman can do, every woman can get? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're definitely things that everyone can do. And what I, I don't really like saying teach, but I suppose it is really. What I teach the people I work with are tools that you can then apply to any situation that's happening in your life. You know, it's what they call transdiagnostic, which means you can apply it to anything is the technical term for it. Um, because it doesn't matter what it, what the trigger is for your anxiety, whether it's that you've had a baby and it's postnatal, which obviously there is hormones and sleep deprivation and all of that that factor into it. But Or it could be that you're going for a job interview or it could be that you know your relationship's ending, whatever it might be, the same tools kind of apply my aim is that I send people away and I teach them to become their own therapist so that then when other things happen to them in their life they've got that and I get people emailing me all the time who I've who maybe I've treated a year ago and they'll go oh, I just want to let you know that this happened and guess what it was all right because I did this this and this and I'm like awesome that's what I want so yeah I just I think there are definitely things everyone can do I just think there's fundamental things that I think should be taught in schools and 
schools are getting better about teaching about emotions and emotional regulation and all of that kind of thing. But I think they're, they're, they could take it a step further. But so I think there are things that everyone can do. I just don't think that maybe that information is. It always amazes me. Obviously, it's my world that I'm involved in and it's not as readily available. But the problem is when you're in that place, you don't want to go looking for it because you don't want to admit it's happening. That's the problem. You don't, you're, too, you're frightened to admit it. You know, what does this mean for me? The big one with mums is that they're worried that someone's going to take their baby away. If I admit this, that's what's going to happen. And that would, I mean, probably, I'm not going to say never happen, but it, it very, very rare. And even we people who have full on, you know, psychosis is really, really rare, but it does happen. And they get admitted on, you know, onto a unit. Their baby's going to go with them. It, it's not, you know, that's extremely rare. And for the bulk of women that have postnatal mental health, issues that that's never going to be the case you know the, the the gps and the midwives and the health visitors they just want to support you and help you and they're getting better i think at being trained to recognize it there's questions this is the other thing i used to when they knew the health visitor was coming i would do that thing of you know wanting to make sure the house is immaculate so that she could think i was doing so well because if my house wasn't tidy she might think i wasn't coping and that that's a bad thing it's, it's just weird the way your brain works the key message for me is that you can you can speak up about this and you you will get support. There is support for you. And there's some brilliant organisations, you know, Pandas, obviously the Samaritans and then Samaritans would, would direct you, but Pandas in specific to postnatal. There's so many really, really good ones. There's, there's more stuff for, for dads as well because dads can get postnatal depression. I've worked with dads and it's not talked about a lot, but there's, there is um, specific resources for them now. But if you go to your GP, I mean, they, they do prescribe prescriptions a lot, you know, and I'm all for antidepressants. I'm not against them. Um, but I think antidepressants and therapy together is kind of the, would be the gold standard. But going, making that first call and going and speaking to somebody, whether it's a health visitor, a midwife. Um, I work with birth trauma a lot as well. So women who've had traumatic births, because that's another massive risk factor. But going and speaking to somebody is is hard, really hard. But if you can do it, everything gets better from then on. And I think that is the key message. So anybody listening today who is maybe you, you've, you're listening to what Andrea's saying and something's just ringing a bell in your head, that's the key message. Go and make that appointment. If you do nothing else after listening to this podcast, I would encourage you, Andrea would encourage you, go and make that appointment because just being able to talk about it the support is there and th- there's so much out there for you. And, and I'll, I'll, I will put some links in the show notes to some of those key um, organizations that Andrea's mentioned. Um, Andrea, thank you so much. I'm asking every single one of my guests to um, tell me a life quote or a verse or a, a saying that resonates with you. Um, can you share what yours is? Mine actually is by a philosopher called Epictetus. And it's the one that the therapy that I'm trained in, the CBT that I'm trained in, all kind of hangs off of and it's the quote to paraphrase it is or this is how I say it to my clients it's not the stuff that happens to you in life that causes you to become mentally unwell it's how you how you deal with that stuff what you think about that stuff because the same trigger event can happen to a hundred different people but they'll all have a different emotional response to it so it's not the thing it's how you choose to view the thing as you know very well from your own experience you know that experience happens to lots of different people they will all come out of that or have a different emotional response to it 
the same with me. Some, you know, with those types of things, some people get angry, some people get anxious, some people get depressed, some people, um, you know, it's different for everyone. So it's not the stuff that happens to us in life, because life's always going to chuck stuff at us. It's how we choose to view that thing, how we choose to think about that thing that will cause us to um, become mentally unwell so your mental health is in your own your own hands I suppose that makes sense hopefully it did it does absolutely thank you so much for sharing that with us as I said I'll pop all the resources that Andrea's mentioned into the show notes thank you once again for sparing me the time thank you for being honest and open and just shining a light that one in three mums will go through this and if you are in that place then please reach out you can reach me um i will pop andrea's contact details into the show notes you can reach out to andrea you do not need to suffer in silence or alone so if you take nothing else from the podcast today please take that thank you so much for listening what a powerful story If you want more information about my guest or their story, check out the show notes. All the details are there. I would love to know what you think about this episode. Head over to Instagram at the Life Chapters pod and tell me what you think. I really would love to know. And if you have a story to share and you want to do it here on the Life Chapters podcast, please get in touch. My door's always open and I would love to give you the platform to share your story. 